0: Good morning. Welcome to Cultivate. My name is Jay. If I didn't get a chance to meet you, I'm the pastor here. Um, we are doing a series uh, called Jonah, the man who ran and the God who ran after. Uh, we are now in our eighth week of the book of Jonah. And if you're paging through, and you're probably going to think to yourself, how in the world can one spend eight weeks in a book that is two pages of an entire Bible? Um, we manage. I don't know. Um, I'm sure you have some theories. Um, but this is going to be our last week in the book of Jonah, but we actually have one more week in the series of Jonah. And that, the reason for that is because we're going to be tacking on some of what Jesus has to say about Jonah and the relationship between him and himself. And so we're going to be looking at a different prophet next week, but we're kind of combining it into the same series. So if you're wondering why it is that we're ending next week, that is the reason. Uh, In the meantime, let me kind of start off this morning by saying, how many of you have ever lived in a big city? And I don't mean Cherry Hill, Um, although Cherry Hill does qualify as a city, I'm talking big city, Philadelphia, New York, D.C., uh, Boston, something along that. Um, For those of you who haven't ever lived in a big city, um, how do you normally feel when you go into the big city? What What are some things that you feel? (laughs) <laughs> Panic. Thank you for being honest. Utter terror. <laughs> um, I've noticed, I, I've lived in Philadelphia for eight years, and then now I've lived in New Jersey for six. And what I've noticed about, and Mandy and I were talking about this because we happened to be in the city uh, back in the spring. We went out to dinner and we went to a concert. And one of the things that we noticed when we were in the city, one of the, for, you know, we don't go there often, but this just happened to be one of the things that we noticed is the longer that we live in the suburbs, the more, uh, or I guess the less safe we feel when we go into the city. Does that make sense to you? The, the, the longer that we spend in kind of quiet, suburban uh, neighborhoods that don't look like the, the area of where I used to live for eight years of my life, the longer I get in terms of distance from that time the less safe I feel when I go back into the environment that I used to feel so comfortable in. It's very strange. So I'm, uh, I'm sort of becoming a suburbanite, I think. I think that transition is happening for me. But I'm starting to kind of uh, sympathize with people that have lived in the suburbs and yet have a difficult time going into the city because the city feels unsafe to those who haven't lived there, grown up there, or spent time there. Um, And this is an interesting transition for me because I think all of us, we start out life feeling like everywhere we go is safe, right? Everything that we do is safe. Everyone that we're with is safe. We're kind of young and stupid, and because we are those things, nothing intimidates us because really we don't have anything to lose. I was thinking of it this way. When I first started driving, my very first automobile if you can call it that, was a 1984 Dodge Ram pickup truck. And it had, like, you practically had to, like, manually wipe the windshield because everything didn't work on it. It had a a manual shift, no power steering, um, it was two-wheel drive, and so if you wanted to drive in the snow, we had to, like, pile the back of it with heavy steel to to get the thing to grip the road because it would have just been all over the place. And, And so... If you're driving that kind of automobile and it goes off the road, one thing is you're, you're in a tank, right? So you're probably not going to get too hurt. But two, if you lose the vehicle, you don't care much about it, right? It just sort of goes off the bank, and whatever condition it is, you, end up, you paid a dollar for it, so it doesn't matter what condition it comes out in. But as you start to drive, you maybe get, you know, a $5,000 vehicle or a $10,000 vehicle or maybe even more than that, you you start to care about what you drive because there is more value in terms of what you drive. Um, So the older you get, I I started to realize at the same time, you start to accumulate things of value that you and I, we prefer not to lose. And so when you graduate from college and you start life with nothing, um, maybe you move into an apartment and you get your first car. And maybe you go from there and you start to date somebody and you get a spouse. And from there you move into a house and so you have value in that house. And maybe you start to have kids with your spouse and so you have kids and you value your children. You start to accumulate things that you value in life. And because you value them, the more value you place on those things, the more necessary it becomes for you to keep those things safe. Right? And so you begin to value safety, and you start to build your life around what is safe and what is not safe. You start to determine where you're going to live based on house values. And the higher the house values, pretty much you can you can mark it down, the more safe that neighborhood is. You begin to choose your... your Cars based on which one has the highest safety rating, which one is less likely to explode like my 1984 Dodge Ram pickup truck, right? Um, We we live in safety. We look for safety. We try to get safety in terms of where we send our kids to school and, and what mutual funds we put our nest egg into. All of it is built around a life of safety And then something happens like what happened early Friday morning and it shatters our sense of safety, does it not? And we think, I can't even go to a movie theater anymore without feeling unsafe. It it kind of comes into our world and we go, what in the world is happening? I used to feel safe and now I don't feel safe anymore. And it really kind of blows up our world because we get to see maybe the first time that there is a problem at work with our effort to find safety. Because the more safety we try to find, if we try to build a life of safety, the more it is that we start to value comfort. And as we're going to find out in the book of Jonah, at the very end, many times comfort is the enemy of God's plan in your life. And so sometimes it seems like God is outright opposed to bringing us comfort in our lives. And there's a specific reason for that. We're actually going to look at what that reason may be. But we're going to see through Jonah that comfort is an obstacle to what God wants to do through Jonah. If you are going to kind of put these together, it'd be comfort versus compassion. And that's kind of what we've titled today. Because the two oftentimes are at odds with one another, both for Jonah and for our life. So, if you remember anything about Jonah and where we happen to find ourselves at this point in the story, what happens? How does, the story, how does the book begin? God does what? He calls Jonah, right? And what does Jonah do in response to God's call? He runs away. Okay, what does God do in response to Jonah running? He, ch- he tracks him down, right? Hunts him down with the storm and the fish. And, and gets him back on track. What what happens after that point? What's that? He goes to Nineveh, right? He, he gets back on track with his mission, and what we learn is Jonah goes to Nineveh and, and gives an eight-word sermon um, ha- kind of half-heartedly, and yet the entire city of Nineveh just breaks down in panic and says, we need to change everything and repent of all of our evilness and really return back to God because... He has given us this prophet in Jonah. And how does Jonah feel about this, trans, this, this transmission that happened? He is ticked off, right? And that was kind of the shocking twist in the book of Jonah. You think Jonah is going to be happy about what God has done through him, and you learn that Jonah is throwing the biggest pity party for himself that you've ever seen. He, he is whining that God actually used him for a purpose that he did not, he did not want to see happen. And, and, and what we said was, Jonah is suffering from a condition called self-righteousness. He doesn't believe that the people of Nineveh deserved the mercy that God gave him, but he sure does believe that he deserved it himself. So that's kind of the major twist in the book of Jonah. He wasn't afraid of going to Nineveh. He wasn't afraid of dying. He was afraid of God succeeding through him and changing the people of Nineveh because he wanted to see them dead. And so we kind of catch up with the story. What in the world is Jonah going to do now, uh, now that God has done this uh, great evilness in his life? So we're going to catch up in verse 5 and see what Jonah does next. Jonah had gone out and sat down at a place... East of the city. There he made himself a shelter, sat in its shade, and waited to see what would happen to the city. So God does this amazing thing in the city of Nineveh. People are repenting left and right. It's this big, great big come to Jesus party. And, and Jonah, instead of saying in the city to maybe, I don't know, help those people who are coming to faith, maybe pray with them and teach them the scriptures and show them how to live life now that they're starting to come to know God. Instead of staying in that environment, he retreats from the city and sets up a little booth for himself just outside the city walls, in the suburbs, so that he can look back into the city just close enough and see maybe, maybe over the next 40 days, God might change his mind or Nineveh may get tired of this whole repentance thing and go back to their evil ways, and maybe my heart's desire will come to fruition and I'll get to see God zap Nineveh. This is what he's doing. He's sitting outside of the city going, maybe things will change. I am going to stick around just long enough to see if God doesn't go and kill them anyway. Who does something like this, right? Um... Who would posture themselves in such a way as Jonah? <laughs> you know what's coming next, right? Maybe I played my hand too soon. This is, it is, if we're being honest, this is the unfortunate track record of the church in America over the last at least 100 years. Let, let's, let's lob our Jesus grenades into the city and tell them how much they need Jesus. Let's tell them how evil they are. Tell them how much they need to change. And then rather than living among them and and loving them in the way that Jesus so loved us, let us retreat to the suburbs of our own comfort. Let us make little shelters for ourselves with steeples on top of them and live just close enough to society that we can see what God does from a distance without getting our hands dirty. Does this sound familiar? This is the church in America. This is the church that I grew up in. This is the environment that we happen to see ourselves. And let me be straight with you, this is the way the world sees us. It is. Talk to enough people, and they will show you exactly what Jonah is doing, only they will change the name to whatever church happens to be on the corner. This is the major issue of the church in the world, and we have been building up to this because it is important for us to see that it is our problem and something that we need to take radically seriously if we are going to have any kind of effect and and be any kind of people that take God's heart seriously for His intention for the world. We we need to see what God has to say. And and God does have something to say. He actually provides an object lesson to Jonah that is going to be uh, kind of an object lesson for us as well. Let's see what God does. Then the Lord God provided a leafy plant And made it grow up over Jonah to give shade for his head to ease his discomfort. And Jonah was very happy about the plant, oddly enough. But at dawn the next day, God provided a worm, which chewed the plant so that it withered. When the sun rose, God provided a scorching east wind. You notice how God is the one providing all these things? He provided a a scorching east wind, and the sun blazed on Jonah's head so that he grew faint. He wanted to die and said, it would be better for me to die than to live. But God said to Jonah, is it right for you to be angry about the plant? And I love this part. It is, actually. (laughs) Thank you for asking. I've been asking you to just get my opinion on this whole thing. And now that you've asked me, let me tell you, It is right for me to be angry. And I'm so angry, I wish I were dead. We talk about a drama queen, right? I mean, there's a special category for people like Jonah. So let me ask, why is Jonah so happy about the plant? What makes Jonah so enamored with this plant that God provided to him? Comfort, right? It provides comfort for Jonah, it gives him the thing that he most desires. You notice the reoccurring theme throughout the entire book of Jonah. What is Jonah most? We've been doing this for eight weeks now. Do you get it? Are you getting the sense of a pattern in Jonah's life? What is Jonah interested in? Himself, right? And whatever brings him comfort, that is the thing which he will pursue to the greatest end. He will go. Through, he he will stop at nothing to get the thing which provides him the most comfort. It doesn't matter if it's in Tarshish. It doesn't matter if it's a leafy plant. Jonah is all about whatever gives him comfort. What is God all about? It seems like whatever gives Jonah discomfort, right? <laughs> I mean, if Jonah is about one thing, God, it's, God is about the opposite to that. Um, and, and the reason... I think that God would pull such a dirty trick on Jonah is because he is trying to contrast for Jonah and ultimately for us what it is that our hearts truly desire and how different our hearts are from God. So let's see what God has to say about it. The Lord said this, you have been concerned about this plant though you did not tend it and make it grow, it sprang up overnight and, and it died overnight. And should I not have concern for the great city of Nineveh, in which there are more than 120,000 people who who cannot tell their right hand from their left, and also many animals? The irony of the entire book of Jonah is that Jonah is concerned solely for what will give him comfort, and God is solely concerned with providing Jonah with enough discomfort that it frees him up to be compassionate towards those who God loves. This is the difference between Jonah's heart and God's heart. And so, come back to our original kind of problem with the church. Why is it that the church has such a difficult time pouring out the compassion of God on the world? Why is it? That we find it so hard to serve our neighbors well with our time and our resources. Because we, like Jonah, care more about our own comfort than the people that God has sent us to. We care more about our own comfort than we do about the people that God has sent us to as his church. And here's how you know it's true, both for Jonah and for us. Jonah treats God how? He treats God as if the primary purpose for God rescuing him from Jonah's waywardness was to give Jonah exactly what he wanted. This is how how he treats God, right? God, if you give me what I want, then I'll be happy. If you don't give me what I want, then I won't be happy with you. This is the way that he treats God. He treats God as if God saved him for himself. Right? Let me ask this. Why did, why did God save Jonah? Why did he rescue him? For who? For God, for others. Specifically who? For Nineveh, right? God rescued Jonah for a mission. It was the whole purpose of him rescuing him and saving him was so that Jonah might actually give other people the same mercy that he had been given. Jonah, I want you to go to the city of Nineveh not so that you're comfortable, but so that you would have compassion on them. This, will, this concept here that we're seeing in Jonah... This will change your life. It will. It will absolutely, radically change your life if you get your mind around this concept and start to live it out for yourself. If you believe that God has saved you for your own comfort, then you will be angry at God every time he calls you to a mission. Mark it down. It's going to happen. God, I don't want to be inconvenienced with having to do your work in the world. I believe that you saved me for my own comfort. You will get angry every time. Every time he pushes you out to to do something that you don't naturally embedded in your heart want to do, you'll get angry at him because you believe that he saved you for you. But if you believe that God has rescued you and brought you into His family, that God has become your Father and that Jesus has become your Savior for the purpose of you being on mission with Him in the world, then you will have no choice but to find your comfort in Jesus. And you will find it in Jesus. You see how these two things work together? If you believe that God has saved you for you, Every time he says, go and, save, and, and help someone else, you'll say, no way, God, because this is about me and you. But if you believe that God has rescued you for someone else, then your response to him will be yes, because my comfort is not in my circumstances. My comfort is in you. Mark it down. Those two things will happen. And the result is what we're going to call the big idea for today is that apart from the gospel, apart from God rescuing us through Jesus for a mission, our inclination as people will always be towards self-centered comfort. You will live your life seeking but never finding the comfort that you desire. But when Jesus becomes our comfort, God can begin to free us towards other-centered compassion. Apart from him, the only choice that we have is to live life seeking out our own self-centered comfort. But when we start to get into our minds that God has rescued us and given us a mission in the world, then we are freed up to because we're no longer looking for comfort, right? Because we found it in Jesus. And when you find your comfort in Jesus, you are now freed up in radical ways to provide other-centered compassion to everyone that God happens to send you to. Those two things work together every single time. And Jesus says this, so, so this is something that you can mark down, right? If Jesus says it, pretty good chance it's going to happen, yeah? He says this, Peace I leave with you. My peace I give you. Do not, I do not give as the world gives, that is, with stipulations or in a half-hearted way, Do not let your hearts be troubled and do not be afraid. The reason that we oftentimes have not found true, real, satisfying comfort is because we've chosen to look for it in places that can never provide it for us. We've chosen to look for it in places that can't provide it for us. So back to the story, right? We tend towards safety, towards comfort. We try to build a world for ourselves where these things are of highest value, and so we do everything we can to construct a safe world. And so when something shatters it, like happened on, on Friday morning, we are wrecked, right? Because now I can't even go to the movie theater and feel safe anymore. But when Jesus is your comfort, you start to get into your mind that in the world you'll have trouble, but in him you're, you're, you're completely safe from all that trouble. Because even if you do happen to go to a movie theater and somebody opens fire on the crowd, go ahead and kill me because I know that my safety is not found here, it's found in him. I'm telling you, if you get this into your mind and into your heart, it will radically change the way that you live forever. The more you look for comfort in things other than Jesus, though, the less available you will be to provide compassion to people that God has sent you to. Um, I remember it kind of, I was thinking back on my story um, and different places in my story where I happened to be on mission with Christ. And so when when I first come to salvation in Jesus and he rescued me as a junior in college, um, I didn't have a whole lot to my name at that point. Uh, and I felt like God was calling me to be a missionary with Campus Crusade and to invest my time for other college students on the college campus. So I raised support to be able to do that. And so I lived and, and ate off of the support of other people. And if people didn't give, I didn't eat, <laughs> right? So if, if you see how this works. If they don't give and the bank account goes up, then I can't withdraw from that bank account because there's nothing there, right? And so for for two years at least, I was kind of living on rice and beans. Beans and rice, if you listen to Dave Ramsey. Um, That was my lifestyle. And I didn't have much to my name. I had this old beater car that was like held together with duct tape. And, And so if that thing would break down, then I'd have to find some way to fix it back up. I was living at the end of my means, and because I really didn't have a whole lot to value in life, I was incredibly free to live out God's compassion for other people. I spent enormous amounts of time just investing in in college students, spending time with them, going to their dorm rooms, teaching them about Christ and about the life that he gives, and about his mission in the world, trying to rally them by the Spirit to go out and to be a light on their campus, to use the four years that God had given them to, to really teach other people what it looks like to be part of the kingdom. And I spent like, up until like 1.30 in the morning a lot of nights just hanging out with guys and investing into them. Because I didn't, I didn't have much to my name. I didn't have other things to value and to take care of. Now, you fast forward at 10 years and I live in the suburbs with a wife and a child in a house with two cars in the suburbs. Did I mention that? (laughs) And, like, if if I'm out past 8 o'clock, I start to get, like, nervous inside, you know? (laughs) Because I'm a lot more worried if I'm just being honest with myself and where I am in life. So, So just know that I'm not, like, I'm not telling you to live a lifestyle that I'm not already struggling with. It's uncomfortable for me to have to change my my patterns of living because over that 10-year stretch, my life has become more and more and more comfortable. And so even to go to a place like Haiti for a week and leave my wife and child behind is incredibly uncomfortable, right? Right? And those of you who made the decision to go just in a couple weeks, you know a little bit of that discomfort because you're probably experiencing it in your own home. The more we find our comfort in the world, the less we're freed up to be compassionate towards the world as God would have us live. It's the tension of living where we live. And so I would ask you this. If God is calling you to invest yourself into someone else, you shrink back from that difficult task in order to protect your own comfortable life. Because God is more concerned with accomplishing His mission through you than He is with making you comfortable. I mean, if you haven't learned that by reading Jonah by now, I'm not sure how else to say it. God is far more concerned with using you as a force for his own compassion in the world, than he is with making your life comfortable. And so if you've got a decision to make, hmm, what should I do tonight? Should I go across the street and invest in my neighbor, or should I be comfortable? Maybe you've never even kind of asked yourself that question before. I would ask you to entertain that question because the answer may surprise you. It may shock you of what God would like to do in you and through you. See, those of us who kind of judgingly say to Jonah, I can't believe that he would be so selfish. I mean, God had called him to Nineveh, and he asked him to do this thing, and here Jonah is sitting on the outside of the city, just waiting for judgment to fall down. I think we all need to see that every day, We make the same choice when we isolate ourselves from an unbelieving world because it's more comfortable that way. It's far easier to turn on the TV and just get lost in a television show than it is to invest in my hurting friend or neighbor, right? Far easier to isolate ourselves from the world. And the opportunities are prevalent. You know how I know? Because we live in suburbia. (laughs) I'm going back to this over and over again. You notice? We live in suburbia. Do you know what suburbia is? It is wanting all the amenities of the big city without having to deal with people. Do you realize that? I want everything that the city has to offer. I want to be close enough to the city that I can go out to dinner anytime I like. I want all the shows and the entertainment that I want. But I don't want to have to live so close to people that I don't have a choice whether or not I see them or not. And so I, I prefer to live in suburbia where I can hit the button on my garage door and I can drive in and then close it behind me and I don't, ha- I don't even have to wave to my neighbor, right? Because likely my, my windows are so tinted that he can't see me <laughs> through them. I'm building a caricature of ourselves, but do you see yourself in it? I sure see myself in it sure do. I would challenge you this way, to to look at your own schedule. Look at how you spend your time. Look at the people that you hang around and see if this principle isn't true in your own life. I think we're far more like Jonah than we would give ourselves credit for. But Jonah is not like God, is he? That's the good news of this whole thing, this whole deal, is that Jonah doesn't look anything like God, and the contrast could not be more drastic. What do we learn about God? Who does God care for and love in the story of Jonah? Who does he love? The sinners, both Jonah and Nineveh, right? And he's determined to be compassionate towards the city, He loves the city. Translation, he loves people. He loves people. He loves them to such a degree that he's willing to die on their behalf. Right? That's the whole reason he sent his son into the world, is to take on the separation that would have kept us from God so that we could be in God's family and live in God's mission. He loves people. And this has been going on for a long period of time. In fact, if you know anything about the story of Israel, God's original kind of people in a nation, he said, my purpose for you is that I'm going to show you mercy. I'm going to make you a people unto myself. And your sole task, your sole responsibility in the world is going to be to live in such a way that other people are going to look at this nation and they're going to think, wow, that's what God's like. He is so compassionate, and he's so loving, he's so gracious. That's what he's like. Let's go to Israel and find out what God is like. And Israel had done such a poor job at being God's people that God decided, I'm going to exile you from the land. I'm going to evict you from this place called Israel. I'm going to put you into captivity so that you'll have no choice but to live out my mission not on your own, but amongst another people. And so he gives them a task to do, and that task is actually in Jeremiah 29. Some of us are, are kind of familiar with Jeremiah 29, 11, For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, right? Plans to grow you and prosper you, not to harm you. Um, this is, these are the verses that come before that. This is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel, says to those who I carried into exile from Jerusalem, God's nation, to Babylon. Build houses and settle down. Plant gardens and eat what they produce. Increase in number and do not decrease. And also seek the peace and prosperity of the, what? Of the city, of the people to which I have carried you into exile. Pray to the Lord for it, because if it prospers, you too will prosper. In other words, here's what God's saying. I have put you into a place for a reason. I've carried you out into the world so that you might love it well as I loved you. And if you love it well, and if you pray for it, and if you seek the prosperity of it, not only will I save it, but I will save you too. In other words, if we're thinking of ourselves, God has sent you to where you live So that you might represent him well. He's placed you not by accident, but on purpose for a reason. You want to know why I know God loves people so well? Because he's forced you to live among them. He loves people so much that he sent you to them. Do you know that? And if you know Christ, you are a sent one. You have been sent into the world to represent him. And he loves you so much that he sent you so that you might get past your own comfort and choose compassion. And he loves them so much that he sent you to them. The Apostle Peter says it this way. Dear friends, I urge you as aliens and strangers in the world to abstain from sinful desires which war against your soul. Live such good lives among the pagans, those people who don't yet know, who aren't yet reconciled, that though they may accuse you of doing wrong, they see your good deeds and glorify God on the day that he visits us. Most of us get this backwards, right? Or at least the church has. Instead of living according to God but in the world, we we live according to the world but in the church. God is calling us to a different life because this is never the life that God intended for you, his people, to live. He's got a much greater calling for you. A much greater calling. We joke about it this way, like, if you've come to church this morning, then that's great and all. But if you become part of the church, you never get to go to church again. Because you don't go to church anymore. You are the church. So if, if God is calling you to be a part of the church, then welcome. And this is the last time you get to go to church. <laughs> I still want you to come, by the way. We still gather as the church, right? Right? Do you see what I'm saying, though? You are the church. So be it. In the world, that's, that's the reason that God has made you part of the church. I love the way that the book ends. This is, It's one of the weirdest endings of a book I've ever seen in my life, because it just drops off, right? It just sort of ends. It's like this cliffhanger ending, and we're, we're forced to ask a question. It's the same question that God gives to Jonah. Should I not Have concern for the great city of Nineveh in which there are more than 120,000 people who cannot tell their right hand from their left. In other words, they don't have a clue. Who's going to show them, Jonah? And also many animals. The answer, of course, is yes, right? God should have compassion. He should love the world. And the question underneath the question is, shouldn't you too? Shouldn't I too? Shouldn't we also love the world the way that God loves the world? I can't help but think about the number um, because there are 120,000 people in Nineveh and it is the greatest city in the world at that time. Do you know how many people live in a five-mile radius around this building? 205,000 people. Five miles, right? Think of the impact that we could have as a church if we took this seriously and started not to live for our own comfort but for the glory of God. Think of the number of people that could be impacted, the lives that could be changed, the generations that could be transformed because God chose to work through you, because you took your calling seriously as a sent one from him. See, not only could it radically change your life, but it could radically change all those who you impact. And I think the, God, the reason that God has placed us here in South Jersey, we've talked about this in terms of our own vision as a church, is because we're strategically placed between both Philadelphia, and New York, Washington, D.C., I was talking to a couple guys about this in Philly. We, we got together to uh, kind of encourage each other and, and really see what God has for our collective churches in this area. And they said that, one, one of the guys said that a group of pastors on the other side of the country who are, who are really serious about mission are starting to create hubs of pastors to encourage one another so that we would all be more serious about the mission together. And he goes, you know, of all the cities that they could have chosen on the East Coast, they chose one city in one place. Do you know where that one is? Philadelphia. And we live in the shadow of that great city. And God has placed us here for a reason? I think so. We live in one of the most strategic areas of the entire world. We live in a, in a place, in an area, at a time where we not only reach those who who are part of this culture, we reach the culture makers of this area. It's a a tremendous calling, and and it starts with getting serious about releasing our own comfort so that we might be the compassionate ones of God. So I know what you're thinking. I do. I'm going to predict it, and you're going to be shocked. Okay? You're thinking to yourself, this is too hard. I mean, you're calling, me, like, us to, to do something radical here, right? I mean, th- this isn't just, like, everyday Sunday stuff. I can go home and, like, you know, go to Chick-fil-A and everything's cool with the world. Th- th- this will, like, maybe Chick-fil-A because that's, like, oh, that's, that's right. It's closed on Sunday. You can't go to Chick-fil-A. I was going to say it's, you know, God's mission to fast food is Chick-fil-A, but uh, not today. Um, if that's your thought, if that's where you are at, let me encourage you with this. You know who wrote the book of Jonah? Let me put it this way. Who would have access to the kind of knowledge that we see in the book of Jonah? There's only two people that I know of, right? Um, God and Jonah, right? Only Jonah would know the thoughts of Jonah written out on paper. And there's a whole lot that's included in the book of Jonah that only Jonah would have access to. And so we come to the end of the book, and we don't see a change in Jonah, do we? He's the same guy. He hasn't changed at all. You ever read autobiographies, though? What do most autobiographies do? They make the person who wrote the autobiography look good, right? The reason you read an autobiography is to learn how great a person that person was and to glean from them what they've learned along the way. We don't see any of that in Jonah. So here's what I'm thinking. If the only person that had access to this information was Jonah. Then Jonah wrote the book. And the way... Nobody writes an autobiography so that they look like a jerk in the end, right? (laughs) And that's Jonah, though. It only can mean that Jonah's heart changed along the way. Right? It's the only option that we're left with. Somewhere along the way, this obstinate stubborn prophet that dug his heels into the ground and questioned God the entire way. God changed his heart and he wrote it down on paper. Not in such a way that brought glory to Jonah, but in such a way that brought glory to God and showed how great he truly is. So if God can change Jonah, you know Jonah pretty well by now. If he can change him, how much more can he change somebody who has been ransomed by the perfect son of god and given the holy spirit all the more, right? That's my encouragement to you. God can and will change your heart if you get serious about what we're learning through the book of Jonah. God did not save you for comfort, he saved you for compassion. Are you willing to entertain that shift in your own life? It's a question I have for you. It's a question I have for me, because it it requires a change in my life, too. So let's come to God and ask for that change, shall we? God, we thank you that you are, first and foremost, a God who saves I know my own story and I know the stories of many of the people that call, cultivate their family and um, apart from what you, you've done in our lives we would be hopeless and, and a wreck and only then our lives would have led to death and separation apart from you and because of your great and gracious act through your son you ransomed us and you gave us life you redeemed us from the realm of darkness into the kingdom of your beloved Son. And so when you look at us, you don't see our sin, you see your Son. And it's that grace and it's that mercy that changes our hearts. You start to get into our minds that you really love us. So God, we thank you for your great love. And those of us that have been shown such mercy, God, I pray that if we have constructed our life in a way that puts comfort ahead of Jesus that we would repent of placing our worship in the wrong place so God we ask that Jesus would be our Lord and our Savior and as our Lord and our Savior we would say to him you're more important than my comfort, you're more important than safety and so I will, I will follow you everywhere that you lead me whether it's my neighbors, whether it's my home to invest in my children or into my spouse whether it's at my workplace whether it's stepping out in faith and going to a foreign country and I pray that we would say yes we thank you so much for your compassionate love it's that love that we cling to it's that love that we find our hope and our comfort in so I pray that Jesus would be our comfort so that we wouldn't be afraid in this world we would do everything God that compassion calls for because we're not looking to the world for comfort we're looking to you Thank you for providing it in ways we could never imagine. It's in your son's name we pray. Amen.